Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hi there. Welcome to the Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham Denai. It is my pleasure to be your host. Happy Thanksgiving, you guys. It is that week if you celebrate that, which we do here in the US. And I hope that you are finding things to be grateful for. I think gratitude is one of our biggest weapons against the kingdom of darkness. And so I just want to tell you that I am I'm grateful for this podcast, for the guests that I get to talk to. It is so cool. I can't get over it sometimes that I get to talk to people and share these stories and testimonies. I am grateful for you listening on the other side of these headphones or car speaker or wherever you're listening to this that I don't take that for granted. And maybe I'll get to hear your story on this side of heaven or maybe on the other, but I look forward to hearing how God is working in your life. And I'm grateful for you. And most of all, I am grateful to God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, for whom we do all of this, without whom we could do none of this. And he is the one who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. He makes the impossible possible. He resurrects what's dead, and he gives us his presence in the middle of whatever pain we are going through. Praise God. I am so grateful for the knowledge and saving grace and blood of Jesus Christ. So, Yay, gratitude. Happy Thanksgiving week. Please uh, travel safely and all those things as you go through your weeks this week. And I hope you get a lot of turkey if you eat turkey. And today on the show, we have Teresa Bodecker, who is an author, speaker, writer, and I love this term. She calls herself a humor hunter, a humor hunter. I want to hunt out humor in my life. And so she does just that in this episode. We don't necessarily go down a a super joking path. It is a bit serious as she takes us through a journey of pain and a horrendous recovery from a car accident that both she and her husband faced together. So she talks about her PTSD, what that looked like. We talk about worth, shame, identity when you're recovering from something and don't feel like you can do or be what you want to be. And even what happens when the church doesn't show up and its people don't help or serve you in the way that we are called to help and serve. So this episode is super important and I love the perspective that Teresa brings now looking back at this after more than two decades that maybe she couldn't have brought when she was going through it. And I love how we interview people in all different stages of their recovery and healing and whatever is going on. But so often I think that we can look back at events and see more clearly, right, with our new theology, what was happening in this, with our new growth and new perspective of what God was doing in this situation. And that's what Teresa brings. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to her today. Good morning, Teresa. Welcome to the Heal Podcast. Thank you, Tara. We're so excited to have you. I am excited to hear a part of your story that you say you don't share that often. How long did it take you, you were telling me before we hit record, before you started sharing this part of your story more openly? I would say it probably took 10 years. And then, I mean, my life is very divided. It's always before the accident or after the accident. That was like the dividing, just, it just became a dividing point in our life for both my husband and I. And I can talk about it now, but now it's so far back that it doesn't come up a lot. Hmm. How many years has it been now? It happened in 94. Okay. I was born in 93. (laughs) So a long time ago. And having moved, all of our new friends don't know about it unless we bring it up. Hmm. Interesting. So it doesn't come up that often anymore. So is this something like when you are, I don't know, in a small group setting or a place where you're Christians would normally share their testimony. Is this a part that you typically include or do you not even mention it when you're sharing what God has done? I don't typically include it because it just seems so complicated. It seems so, I I guess I'd have to say that it just seems so complicated to even describe or to tell about that. It's just like, 
let's talk about something that's, you know, only going to take a couple minutes. Well, we have an hour, so that's good. <laughs> so give that foreshadowing to people on there's something big coming, but let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you, who you are, what you like to share, maybe something fun and quirky. Doesn't have to be whatever you want. Right. So I'm a wife and I'm married to a man. And of course, once you know, he's my complete opposite. So that gives us many things to laugh about. And then I'm a mother of two children and they're 15 years apart. The oldest is married and has a couple little children. And then my youngest just turned 18 and he just started college. I grew up having no sense of humor at all. When I was a teenager, like all the, would be in a group and everybody would be laughing. And I'd say to my sister, who was two years younger, what's so funny? What's so funny? Why are they laughing? And then I'd think about it or she'd say something. Then I'd start laughing and they'd all look at me. Teresa, that was like a minute ago, you know? (laughs) So it took me a long time to develop my sense of humor. And I'd have to say that faith touches every part of my life. That's very important to me. I'm a former English instructor teacher, a writer. And I would say one super quirky thing about me is I cannot sneeze quietly from the time I have ever been. I have these friends, you know, and they sneeze and they sound like a little mouse. And that's what when I sneeze, sneeze, everybody knows. And my husband will say, Teresa, can't you sneeze quietly? I have tried and I have hurt myself, but no, I cannot sneeze quietly, but no one would know by looking at me. Hmm. But if you're around me when I sneeze. That's interesting. What what do you think a, a loud sneezer looks like? I don't know what a loud sneezer looks like. You know, maybe, maybe they have a big nose or something. I don't know, but <laughs> it's, it's so embarrassing because you'll be like in the middle of church or the middle of a wedding. And I'm thinking, oh no, Teresa, do not sneeze. Do not. Oh, no, please do not sneeze, you know, because then everybody's looking like, oh, well, now you've disturbed everything. Well, I hope that you sneeze during this podcast and we won't edit it out and we'll just let people (laughs) hear the sneeze. (laughs) Break the microphone. (laughs) Well, that is a fun, quirky fact. So what do your days look like just in general, giving people an idea? So you said you're an empty nester now? Well, actually, my son... Almost, but he go, he lives at home, but he's attending college okay. in, in town here. Okay. Yeah. So almost. So you're still momming a bit, and then yes. you are a speaker and a writer as well. Do you get to work on those kinds of things on a daily basis or no? I try to. Doesn't always happen. Yeah. I've got other commitments to family commitments, helping some family members, caretaking a family member. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah. What would you suggest to someone who has an idea on their heart or they're like, ah, I just, I feel like maybe this book is in me or I feel like maybe I want to speak. You know, you are, you've made the step to commit to it, right? Yes, I did. Amidst all of this stuff. So what would you say to someone who's maybe thinking about that right now? I would say just sit down and try and write like every other day, every day, every other day, probably take the weekends off and just see what comes out. That's a really interesting exercise. Just sit down, set the timer for half an hour, write, and you'll start to see a pattern. Like maybe you're telling stories. Maybe you're telling stories that involve God. Maybe you have a sense of humor and you're telling funny stories. Maybe you like to craft nonfiction. Maybe you craft something more like devotionals. Is this a difference between like journaling and writing? Because I feel like if I just sat down and wrote just out of nothing, that would be my like word vomit of whatever emotional, I don't want to say crisis, whatever emotional trial is bothering me, that's what would probably end up on the page. (laughs) Yeah. So yes, that would be a journal. So I would just say like, if you're writing, trying to just find your voice, trying to figure out what should I talk about? Mm -hmm. If you keep talking about your home, well, maybe then you have a lot of information about a home you could impart. Yeah. Like if you're thinking about starting a blog, a lot of people don't know what to write about or they think, well, I have no idea. Well, if you sat down and you just saw what came out every day, not as a journal, but as something that you would, mm-hmm. you could write for other people, mm-hmm. you'll start to see patterns come out. Yeah. I've never done that. I'm curious what would happen, but... 
also on that, just thinking, I don't know that I've ever mentioned this on my podcast, but we connected through Called Creatives, which is a really cool community. It is for women. I know we have men who listen as well, but Christian authors, speakers, writers, creatives who are wanting to do something. So I'll link that in the show notes if people are interested in that. But I just, obviously, I like this profession. It's part of what I do, but it's it's fun hearing other people's wisdom in that. So thank you. Sure. And now we're going to jump in a little bit to this story that you don't get to share fully a lot. So I know it was a long way back, but you think in words, you like to share in words. So give us your words, take us through just the accident, maybe what life looked like a little bit before that. And then we'll just kind of go through and see what God did. So at that time, my daughter was five years old and I was teaching at a college and my husband was working, you know too. So we lived a very busy life and we went down to visit my mom that weekend, which was about an hour and 15 minutes away. And we left your house probably the second or third day we were there and we were driving down the road. I mean, right next to the school, right where I attended because it was the house I grew up in and a school bus. I saw a school bus coming. There was a dump truck coming up the, there was a small hill incline, we'll say. And I saw the dump truck coming. And then behind the dump truck was a school bus. And I saw the school bus and I saw it just barely start to turn. And it, that's, I don't remember anything after that, but it definitely, it hit our car. And I remember just like, I was feeling like I was floating underwater, really, really, really deep water. And I could see the sun above the water in like lily pads And I could hear all this moaning and groaning and everything like that. And I remember thinking, I had this big internal struggle with myself because it was like, Teresa, wake up. And then I'm like, no, don't wake up because you won't like what you see. Mm -hmm. So eventually I woke up. I heard my daughter. That was one of the sounds I heard. And I woke up and I could not see anything outside the car, but I could see everything inside the car. The pain in my back was like just horrific. I kept thinking, I tried to move and I couldn't move. I tried to move my arm, couldn't move my arm, tried to move my neck, couldn't move my neck, tried to move my leg, couldn't move. All the while there's this moaning. And then I eventually realized it was me that was moaning because my daughter had been crying and screaming, but she was taken out of the car. Only I didn't know it, but that's why I no longer heard her. Mm. And I remember I turned my eyes to the left and I saw my husband and he was like all slumped over the 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 steering wheel. And then blood started coming out of his mouth and his nose. And he, he came to for like just a second and looked at me and said, are you all right? And then he was gone and that he was just, and eventually as I sat there, like I said, I could not see outside the car at all. My eyes would not focus outside the car. Eventually I heard sirens coming in the background. The accident took place probably a mile and a half from a hospital. And I could hear two ambulances coming. And the guy, one of the guys opened the door and I said, if you could just put a pillow behind my back, my pain will stop. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what I was thinking in my brain. Just, you know, <laughs> if I could just, cause I couldn't undo my seatbelt cause I couldn't move. And I thought if he could undo my seatbelt, put a pillow behind my back, then I would be fine. Mm-hmm. My pain would go away and everything would be fine. Well, I ended up actually having a broken back in several places, but he, he undid my seatbelt and then somebody checked on my husband and then everybody left me and went to help him. I didn't realize it, but his lungs had torn away from his heart. Oh. And so he was actually pretty much dead at that point when they pulled him out of the car and I heard his ambulance go. And then they, then they eventually got me out of the car. And they put Ashley and I, that's my daughter, in the same ambulance, you know, and you're taped, you're taped across your forehead, across your chin, across your, you know, all the way down. Mm -hmm. All I could see was just straight ahead, you know, because you can't turn, you can't move, can't do anything. And I remember starting to cry in the ambulance and the guy said, do not cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Your daughter's here. You have to be strong for her. Hmm. So I immediately stopped crying. And we went to the hospital and it was, we were in the hospital for several weeks, over two weeks. My husband was on the first floor. 
I was on the 10th floor, so I didn't really see him. And the nurses would say, the nurses wouldn't really tell me much about him at all. And I would forget that I was married. I would forget that I had a daughter. And then Ashley actually stayed in the room with me when she was released. Was she okay? She had a really bad seatbelt burn and she was very traumatized and shaken up, but physically she was okay. I had a broken back in several places. So I was confined to a bed flat on my back. If I wanted to turn over, I had to call a nurse in and she would turn me. Then I had broken ribs and a broken knee. Nobody ever figured that out till months later that I had broken ribs and broken knee. But so I was just trying to survive and I would forget that I was married and everything. And the doctors at one point, they, all the nurses at first said, oh, your husband's fine. Well, he got to the hospital. I mean, it's just a miracle he, he's alive because they knew he was bleeding internally. They didn't know where. Mm-hmm. And they cut him up open in the back. Well, they took x-rays. They saw he was bleeding. They cut him open in the back, like around your shoulder, a big see like this. Mm-hmm. And they were looking all inside him and they couldn't figure it out. And then they realized that his heart was separated from his lungs. So they quickly stitched him back up and then tore him open from the front and then fixed everything. My goodness. They never told me till like I went to a doctor's appointment to him over, with him over a year later. Because the nurses just were saying, you know, oh, your husband's fine. Your husband's fine. But the doctor thought gave him less than a 1% chance to live. And if he was going to live, he would be a vegetable, he said. That's not the case now. That's not the case. No. He ended up living, although about the third day into the hospital, a doctor, his doctor appeared in my room and he just said, are you the wife of Curtis? And I said, yes. And Ashley was not in the room, but he said, well... Your husband is bleeding internally. He's too weak for us to open him up. I doubt he's going to make it through the night. Do you have any questions? And I was like, I, I didn't even know what to say. So I said, no, I don't have any questions. And then he left. Hmm. And I thought, oh, wow. And then I thought, should I go to sleep tonight? Because he might die. And then I forgot that, that he was sick because I was kind of in and out a lot. Yeah. Do you think that was good or not that you weren't really able to even be super coherent for that? I think it's good. Yeah. Otherwise I would have been worrying too much. One of the things that did happen is I had a really, really bad concussion because I hit my head on the dashboard, not on the dashboard. Even though I was wearing like a seatbelt across to me, I hit my head on the windshield. I had tons of glass, like just all over my hair. But I also hit my head under the dashboard. So I hit it on the window and then I hit my head, went down, hit my head like between my legs under the dashboard. Oh my gosh. So I hit my head twice. So I had, I didn't realize it. It took months before they figured out I had a concussion. But like, I felt like one side of my face was like probably six inches farther than the other one. And I couldn't, it was months before I could read and actually follow what I was reading. So probably about, I don't know, maybe six, seven months. I started back teaching probably about five months after the accident. And I would read essays and I think, well, it was something about chocolate and I'd read it again. Hmm. And I'd read it again. And then I'd think, well, just put a grade on it, Teresa. Yeah. (laughs) Because I had a lot of trouble remembering what I was reading and processing it because of the head injury. So I was a teacher as well. And I can't fathom that. My goodness. (laughs) So, okay. The school bus hit you from the front as it was turning left or right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to picture it. It was turning in front of it. So we were let's just say we were going north. It was coming south and it turned right in front of us. Okay. And there was nowhere to go. I mean, it turned, it was what happened. It was following the dump truck way too closely. It thought no one was coming, but it couldn't see far enough. It started to turn and because it's so big and Mm -hmm. it hit us. And I assume people in the school bus were okay just because it was so much bigger. 
yeah, there was only, that was a real big blessing. There was only the driver and the school bus and she was fine. So there were no children. Okay. It was actually going to pick the children up to take them to home from school. Okay. Oh my goodness. This is very traumatic. And you were telling me before that you learned later that if you don't talk about the incident in the first few days, then you are what highly likely to develop PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened to you. Yes. So actually all three of us developed PTSD. It probably was, it was probably a year and a half to two years before it was diagnosed, even though we were all seeing therapists. Mm -hmm. Ashley had a therapist. I had a therapist. Curtis had a therapist, but, and different things would trigger our PTSD. Like for Ashley, she was, she was terrified we were going to die again. I mean, die. If you started the car and she did not have her seatbelt clicked shut, I mean, on, she would just start screaming like at the top of her lungs, just, Mm. you know what I mean? So different things set us off. And then me, I don't, I didn't remember the whole accident, but as time went on, like for the first month or two, I started realizing different things. I started remembering different things. Like I, mm-hmm. like at the scene, of, just for an example, at the scene of the accident, I remember coming to and seeing a big hunk of red hair on the dashboard. And I thought, huh, I wonder whose hair that is. Well, I'm the only, I'm sitting right in front of it, right? I'm the only one with red hair. Like whose else's hair could it be? Two weeks later into the hospital, I'm rubbing my head and I realize, huh, I'm missing some hair. Hmm. Two weeks later, I'm at home in my hospital bed and I suddenly have the bright idea. Oh, that was my hair. Mm-hmm. See how it long it took me? Yeah. Like <laughs> so long to start to piece things together and to, to, because of my head injury and everything that I couldn't remember certain things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that doctors now, like, are they aware of that fact that they try to help people process trauma? Or would you suggest that people talk about something like that within the first few days? Have we advanced in that? Or do you think that's still a hole in the system? I think they know more about it. And see, the thing was, none of the doctors or nurses really asked me to talk about the accident. Mm -hmm. And when the guy in the hospital, I mean, the guy in the ambulance, he said, don't cry. It was like, okay, I wasn't allowed to say anything. That's what I felt. Okay. And when people came to visit me in the hospital, nobody ever really said, well, Teresa, tell me what happened. Like, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Are you scared? They would say, we would, we would talk about the weather. They would say, like, how fast were you going? Well, we weren't going fast because I'd looked at the speed limit, the speedometer right before, like probably three seconds before we hit. Just I just glanced over at Curtis and I saw the speedometer. You know what I mean? They just ask questions like that, but nothing about me. My sister was on a motorcycle and she got in an accident. She was a passenger. And I remember calling her in the hospital and I said, Bridget, you've got to start talking about the accident like right away. And she said, actually, when they came to pick her up in the helicopter, that was the first thing they kept asking her over and over again about the accident Mm -hmm. so that she could process it, so that she could talk about it. And she said they did that the whole time she was in the hospital. Wow. So I do think, at least in her hospital, that people are beginning to see that. Yeah. And maybe that's something if you're a friend, it's just mm-hmm. something for us to store. Hopefully you don't have to do that, right? But if you're making a hospital visit, just to ask someone even how they're they're feeling about it. Right. Instead of... I think we are like, wow, my friend is trying to survive. I'm going to talk about the weather. Like that's human nature. But maybe listening to this, someone someday will be able to be brave and ask those questions because I think it could really help. Yeah. So take us through what was the aftermath then? So you get back from the hospital. Your husband miraculously survives. You're both, I would imagine, down for the count. So what what starts happening then? Yeah. So I, because, because of my broken back, I was not allowed to get out of bed till they actually made a brace for me, like two days before I left or maybe it, yeah, about two days before I left. And 
I saw my husband like the day before we left. I walked up to his room in my brace. I went home by ambulance, flat on my back. Curtis went home. His mom took him home, him and Ashley home. We got home and I had a hospital bed for myself. And I was not allowed to get up without my brace put on. I had a, my 16-year-old sister came home with us. And she would strap me into the braces. And she would had Velcro. And she would strap it as tight as she could. Then I could get up. But I was never supposed to sit for more than five minutes a day. And But when I got up. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that was just going pee, right? <laughs> I mean, like, there's your five minutes. You mm-hmm. can't sit to eat or anything. I just eat flat on my back in bed. Once I was up, though, the pain was so great that I had to just pace. If I didn't pace, I couldn't handle the pain. It was just like constant pacing, just pace, 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 pace. So I spent almost the next four months in bed because it took four months of being flat on my back from my back to heal. Mm. And my husband came home and of course he had been cut up both the front and the back. He also had a broken a fracture in his back that he wasn't diagnosed till several weeks later. He had a broken wrist, was wasn't diagnosed for several weeks later. But his pain from where they had opened up was so great, you know what I mean, that those were secondary. Mm-hmm. And he, he was having trouble, like, focusing and things like that. And he would get up out of bed and, like, kind of roam the house, but he couldn't go to work, couldn't do anything, mm-hmm. you know, and then be in bed. So we lived very different lives. I would be in my hospital bed in my room all, you know, all day, all night pretty much, except for getting up to go to the bathroom and things like that. And he would, you know, kind of be roaming, trying to heal. Mm-hmm. And then eventually after a couple months, he started back to work for two hours a day, then four hours. And then his clavicle was broken and then he had to go in and get that fixed. And so then he went back to the bed, back to square one, you know what I mean? And then after mm-hmm. a couple of weeks after that, then he started back to work two hours, four hours. And I naively thought that as soon as I get my back brace off, as soon as I could get up out of bed, life would return to normal and I would be normal. Mm-hmm. Well, that was silly because yeah. it was like when I got back upright, then I had real pain. And I mean, rehab and-, and rehab and physical therapy and all this stuff. And I was trying to go back to teaching at the same time and trying to take Ashley to school and try and get back into life. And I remember, I just think, I just think if I can get through the next five minutes, if I can just get through the next five minutes. Mm -hmm. So like I said before, my husband's in my, he doesn't remember anything about the accident. He, and his experience, he only remembers a few things in the hospital because he was in and out so much. I mean, cognizant. He was in a coma for probably five days. And then I was up on the 10th floor in the back section and I had my daughter and I would come and go. And, but I remember like everything about the accident. And then our, our healing was so much different. He was able to get up and move around. I was confined to the bed Mm -hmm. and he was able to start back to work earlier. Yeah. And I wasn't, but both of us were just trying to like as quickly as we could put the accident behind us and hope that we would be well, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine not. So how many years, I'm assuming it was years, did it take before you both came back to like any semblance of what you would call normal? I know you said that you view your life pre-accident, post-accident, and now I think we understand why, but it took years, I'm assuming. Yes, I remember probably, like I said, we each we each had our own doctors and all this stuff. And I remember probably it was two and a half years into the accident. I mean, after the accident, we were talking to the therapist. And this was one meeting where Curtis and I were together. And I don't even know why we were talking to this therapist together that day. And Curtis was talking about like he had these, he was describing a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And the therapist goes, oh, you're having panic attacks. That's what you're having. And I remember hearing him describe that. And I thought, that's just normal. That's just a normal part of life. Cause I could not remember not having them every day, like mm-hmm. since the accident, I just, 
assume that they were just a normal part of life. And she goes, well, I can give you medicine for that to Curtis. And so Curtis started taking medicine and I kept having the panic attacks. And I finally thought, okay, I need something. I need something. So then I finally started taking some medicine too. But because they, we had all so many different issues mm-hmm. and they don't, they couldn't address them all. So right. you get address this one and then you address that one and then you address this one. So here we'd been living with panic attacks for over two and a half years and neither of us even knew it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I want to know how this affected your marriage and then get into the spiritual side of all this. But like, my goodness, like, is this just when you have two people literally trying to survive, you also have a child. Yes. What on earth does that look like for your marriage? I remember I would, like I said, we didn't talk. We didn't talk about the accident much afterwards because it would trigger me and I would just shut down. And I felt, I was going to, I was also going to say, I felt extreme guilt as a mother, not being there for my daughter. You know, when you're lying in bed and someone else, my 16 year old sister is getting her up in the morning and making her lunch and taking her to school and you're doing nothing. You can't even get up to go to the bathroom. You can't even get up to Mm -hmm. turn a light on if you want a light. You know what I mean? I, I would wait. My sister would get Ashley ready in the morning and I would sit and I'd wait and wait. Well, no, I'd lie and wait and wait and wait. And then finally she would come in and then it should get me in my back brace and I could finally get up and go to the bathroom and, you know, eat whatever is exciting thing I was going to do that day. <laughs> <laughs> Lying in bed. But I felt so, so hopeless. I felt so helpless. And during that time I went into a deep depression and I, so my husband came home and he's like excited to be alive. Cause if you know anything about the stages of grief, you know, he was in the excited mm. to be alive. I, I had gone through that in the hospital. I was in depression now. And every day I woke up, you know, sad, I wasn't dead mm. that I hadn't died, you know, and I dealt with everything by just shutting myself off and building all these walls. And he had anger about the accident and anger like me shutting myself off. And so I would not say it was a good recipe. And neither of us knew what to do. Neither one could help ourselves. Neither one could help the other. And we went through a year, a very bad year of our marriage. And I remember my therapist saying, Teresa, you, most marriages, the statistics would be 80 to 90% would divorce because of this. Wow. But you can get through this and you can become stronger. You can reheal your marriage and in the process, teach your daughter that you can overcome hard things. Hmm. And I thought, okay, I don't want to be a statistic. And it was about a year and a half after the accident, we moved to a new house and my husband and I both sat down and we decided it was going to be a clean break. We weren't taking the bad from the old house and the accident. Hmm with us to the new house. And so we made a very concentrated effort to like start again. We had been married for seven years when the accident happened. So we made a very concentrated effort. Okay. We're going to start putting our marriage as a priority. We went to a marriage retreat. I heard about on focus on the family and that at about the same time too. And that helped, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't much of a marriage at that point Mm -hmm. because we were just trying so hard to survive. And we, we didn't even really even have much in common. Yeah. Except the accident. Except the accident, which neither. But your was. results were different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. So you were Christians at this point, right? Mm-hmm. We were. So I can't even imagine. What did your relationship look like with God when you were lying down for four months in a bed and barely able to think with a concussion? But, and maybe it was kind of like your marriage, like almost put on pause for a bit, but I'm sure at some point as you're gaining recovery, you start having to deal with what, what is my faith in this? Mm -hmm. And now that I am past the survival stage, what do I think about God? And so as these things started being sifted out, I mean, what, what did your faith look like at this time? What were some of the challenges or questions then that came up with God? I would say, okay, I grew up in a very legalistic family, church. 
And when I was flat on my back, that was, I went through a lot of things in my faith, like what was my worth? I couldn't do anything for myself. Hmm. Couldn't do anything for my family, my husband or my daughter. Definitely couldn't do anything for God. Hmm. I felt like I had no worth. Like what, why would God even, what use was I to God? Yeah. I couldn't do for him. So it was a big confrontation with like my worth as a person, Mm -hmm. my worth to God through the accident and recovering. I realized that I didn't really have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And that's when I began to realize that I, yes, I was a Christian, but I needed a relationship with God. Yeah. And it wasn't me doing for God. Mm -hmm. He loved me in that bed when I could not do anything for myself, Mm -hmm. you know, when I couldn't even read a book and follow the book, he still loved me Mm -hmm. when I couldn't do anything for my family. And that was hard too, to think that, okay, does my, even my family even love me when I can't do anything for them? Yeah. Because my worth at that point, a lot of it was based upon doing, Yeah. doing for God, doing for, you know, being the best mother I could, being the best wife, you know what I mean? Doing, doing, doing and helping. And that, that was my worth. That's where I found my worth. And when I was flat on my back, like, where was my worth? I thought, I don't have any worth. So what conclusion did you come to? Or how did you accept that? Because I think a lot of people listening I'm like, yeah, I feel that way. You know, I have a chronic illness or chronic pain where I'm married and I don't know if I will ever be recovered or able to serve my family or God the way that other able-bodied people are. How did you receive the truth that God loved you and you were worth something to him when you could do nothing? Or do you still receive it? And that's something you have to keep doing. Right. Yes. I do have to receive that because sometimes I still do think, okay, if I accomplish more then I'm worth more. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have to remind myself, no, God loves us unconditionally. And you have a baby and a baby doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And yet we love a baby. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I would have asked one of my friends, do I have any worth? Of course they would have said, of course you have worth, right? Even if you're laying in a bed and you can't do anything. And God loves us unconditionally, whether we can do anything for him or not. That's not what the relationship is about. It's not us doing for God, him doing for us. It's a relationship. Unconditional love, whether we can do anything or not, does not affect his opinion of us, his love for us. And I had to come to that conclusion that I was still worth something, though I couldn't do anything and I felt worthless. Mm -hmm. And I had to come to the conclusion, okay, God loves me unconditionally. Even if I was a vegetable and could not move, could not think, I am still his child. God still loves me. I still have value as a human being. And he's not going to turn his back on me just because I can't pray out loud during a church service or, you know, serve a meal to someone or do something. And sometimes like you, we feel like we feel worthless. And and I have to remind myself, Teresa, are you going to believe God? Are you going to believe your feelings? Hmm. Are you going to believe God that you're loved unconditionally? You have value, you have worth, or are you going to believe some lie that, you know, from my childhood, that you are only valuable if you do, 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 do. Mm -hmm. No, I need to believe God. God loves me unconditionally. Just like I would love my husband, even if he couldn't get up and do anything. Mm -hmm. It it seems to me like this was a process of going from believing in God to believing God. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how, which by the way, is a great book by Beth Moore. If you're like, oh, that's a cool concept. Believe in God. There's a difference because we can know, right? And the Bible says that, well, even the demons know God and they admit that there's God and they tremble. Mm-hmm. But 
that's not knowing God and loving him. Believing in him is very different than believing what he says about us and our worth and our identity. My question is, it sounds like this genuine, more genuine relationship where you're talking with God and listening to what he's saying began after this accident. And so how were you able to form a relationship with God when I'm assuming on, on your back, you couldn't read the Bible, you couldn't, maybe you could listen to some sermons, but I think these are the ideas that we have of like, well, this is how I build my life with God. I'm going to listen to podcasts. I assume podcasts were not a thing in 1994. So how did you build a relationship with God lying on your back? That is interesting because I think what God did, first of all, he was with me in that bed, right? I felt despair and hopeless, but my husband still loved me. My daughter still loved me. My sister still loved me, right? And that was, I began to see myself, God, a little bit of God through them because to them, I wasn't hopeless. Okay. So then I can make the leap. Okay. God doesn't think I'm hopeless, right? They haven't given up on, my family hasn't given up on me. God hasn't given up on me. And you're right. I didn't, we weren't going to church. I couldn't go to church on a back, you know, on a stretcher. So I wasn't listening to anything, but I think it was just God breaking down some of the lies. I believe like I had to do to be worthy. I had to do to be loved, challenging those beliefs. And then when I started back to, when I actually was able to get out of bed and actually started back teaching, I would listen to focus on the family on the way to work. Mm -hmm. It just happened to be on. And I'd never listened to Christian radio station until that time. But I was driving to work one of the very first times. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. And they kept talking about a relationship with God. And I kept thinking, what's a relate? Okay, I need that. Okay, so that changed my idea. Oh, this is a give and take. This is a relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not me doing for God and then him blessing me only if I did enough. Yeah. It's not like a parent child. Do you know what I mean? Okay. I'm going to ask for something. God, can you do this? And he looks down. Okay. Have you prayed today? Did you make your bed? You know, mm -hmm. did you feed your family? Well, okay. I guess I'll give that to you. Right. Yeah. And then they were always emphasizing marriage too. And that made me want to work more on my marriage and preserve my marriage. But it was through listening to that show and the topics they had that I started. The, and then that helped me realize that God really did love me because I hadn't heard that much growing up. That was not something I had heard and that he loved us unconditionally. And I kept thinking, if I love my husband and I love my child and I would do so much for them, how much more would God love me and want to do for me? right? Because it says that in the Bible. Yeah. Amen. You know, mm -hmm. a father will give his son a loaf of bread. If a father gives his son a loaf of bread, when he asks for a loaf of bread, how much more will the father do it for us? Right. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, like there was nothing Ashley could do that would make me not want to help her. Yeah. And if I feel that way toward her, how much more does God feel that way toward me and starting to see God in that relationship and believing what he, what he said, mm -hmm. hearing these truths, like he loves you unconditionally. Oh, well, what does that mean? That means I can screw up, right? Mm -hmm. And brimstone and fire is not coming down from heaven, right? Yeah. He's still going to love me. Mm -hmm. He's not going to say, okay, that's it, Teresa. <laughs> yeah. Done. So when you're talking, what I am thinking about, because I think this is super important, uprooting lies, and that even if someone is not confined to a bed, I mean, even, let's be honest, if someone's not dealing with chronic pain, like there are lies we believe, and I'm working through that right now. And it's really interesting as you uproot the lie, because a lot of things that our culture values, like being an achiever and doing that, well, a lot of that is because of people's perfectionistic tendencies, which really roots, stems from insecurities. Right. Right. And so I've been like, well, what is my root of perfectionism? Because I do struggle with that. And I think, you know, some of it is that I don't believe God or other people will do something if I don't do it, that no one else 
we'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. And part of it is I'm worried that I will become pretty much useless and just be okay with myself being lazy and not being driven anymore because I'm somehow now content with myself the way I am and I don't need to be perfect, blah, blah, blah. So it's interesting because it's not just this, oh, I've uprooted the lie. Now we're golden. You know, I, I dug that weed out and I threw it in the trash can. So I imagine for you that when you started uprooting a lie of that your worth and and that God loved you unconditionally, there was probably some shame that you had to work through later. Is that true? And then like, how did you continue to work through that shame? And I know this was a long time ago. So you have the perspective looking back of like, I think your faith is very different now. Oh, so how did that happen? Yes. I I would agree. And I would say, yes, those lies. I think sometimes those ones we get in childhood, we're fighting them the rest of our life. Hmm. You know, I still have to remind myself, Teresa, your worth doesn't come from what you do because that is a lie from my childhood. Shame. Yes. And shame so often is the story we tell ourselves, which is often a lie. Hmm. And yes, I had a lot of shame to get through the shame of being not being there for my husband. And you think, well, how could you be? You were in a bed. Well, but you, like you said, your perfectionistic tendency. Well, if I should have been able to do something, like maybe call him, you know, call his hospital room every day, not being there for my daughter, carried guilt and shame about that for years. And I remember even apologizing to her. I don't know. She might've been 18. We were talking about, because in her mind too, it's before the accident and after the accident. Mm -hmm. And I said, Ashley, I'm so sorry. Like, like I wasn't there for you all the time. And I mean, I don't even, you know, suddenly I'm there helping her get dressed in the morning and suddenly she has to get herself dressed and turn on her own shower, you know, and all these things. And I had no idea how she was coping. I was in a hospital bed. She goes, mom, mom, it's all right. Because it helped me to learn things and strengthen me. You know what I mean? And you, we have to let go of that guilt and just, and that shame. And I'll tell you one area that I carried shame in from the accident for years was after the accident happened, we, we were confined to our house, couldn't leave the house basically. And our pastor lived probably a mile and a half from us. And we would even, we had walked by his house and visited with him several times, even before the accident. So I'm saying he lived very, very close. (laughs) He came to visit us in the hospital. And then I remember him calling two or three times saying, how are you guys doing? I'm going to try and come over and visit you, but I doubt I'll be able to come and visit you because I'm so busy. And he never did come to visit Hmm. us. Interesting. No one came from the church. No one brought us a meal. Hmm. No one. I'm saying I felt so alone and rejected and abandoned. And not only by the church, I felt abandoned by my husband too, because he couldn't help me. Yeah. And I knew he couldn't help me, but still I'm saying I felt abandoned. Right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and this is what we often do. I'm not going to blame them something's wrong with me. Hmm. The reason they didn't come to help me or us after the accident, I remember showing up to church like four or five months later and people going, oh, I thought you guys just quit. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, okay. And yet it had been announced. Everybody knew about it, but I guess we took too long to come back. Oh, my goodness. I but I thought, okay, it's because... I didn't do enough at the church, maybe, that they didn't come to visit. Hmm. I maybe wasn't a good enough Christian. We'd only been attending that church for two years, so we probably hadn't been attending long enough. Do you see how I mm-hmm. adopted it and I made it myself? It's something is wrong with me. Someone's external actions went straight to your identity. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was about seven years later. This is the very first time I ever really talked about the accident to somebody. She invited me over and she said, tell me about the accident. Because she had asked me a question. I just started crying and I just said, oh, it was because of the accident. And I wouldn't say anything more. And she said, she made me sit down. She said, tell me about the accident. It's the first time I'd ever talked about it really to anyone. And I started telling her and she said, Teresa, did the church come over and help you? 
And I remember thinking, just feeling shame from her question, just great shame because no, it was because of me, right? They didn't, you know, somehow we weren't a good enough family that they didn't come and help us. And I said, no, no, they didn't. And she said, Teresa, they didn't. They should have been there bringing you food. They should have been there Mm -hmm. singing you hymns and reading the Bible to you and showering you with love. And when she said that, and I said, well, they were busy. You know, the pastor said he was busy. And then, you know, a couple months after that, there was a church split. And I was making all these excuses for them. And she said, Teresa, they should have done that. There is no excuse. Hmm. It's not you. And I thought, and see, that's one way we break shame is when somebody says, no, that story you have is wrong. Mm, yeah. That story that it's you. Yeah. It was your fault. And I was like, oh, oh, that perspective. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. It wasn't me. It just happened, mm-hmm. you know, but I took it personally yeah. thinking it was because of us, me primarily. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lesson in there, too, for people listening who are just church members or pastors listening of a lot of times I have people on and thankfully, you know, they have incredible people who supported them during this time. But I think it's really important to see the other side because I think a lot of people share your story where they weren't supported and the church did not show up how we're called to show up. Right. And so what would you say to someone who maybe is struggling to reconcile a God who loves them unconditionally with the fact that his people who claim him have not? Oh boy. And that, that is hard because I'm going to tell you, you see, and I've read so many memoirs or stories. So you see on TV and you see in Hallmark and stuff and you think everybody, but you are the only one where no one showed up for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because that's what we see. And that's, you know, and it's not true. It's not true. There's a lot of people that people aren't showing up for. And I'm going to say it's often not anything to do with you. People are selfish. People don't know what to say to somebody that's hurting. They don't want to be uncomfortable. There's, these are all excuses and they're the wrong excuses. But I'm saying people sometimes don't step up and do what they're supposed to do and help and give support and unconditional love. And I'll tell you, if one thing it taught me, the accident taught me is to have great compassion, empathy for other people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to, to hopefully show up for them, bring them a meal, talk to them. Because it is uncomfortable sometimes when people are in pain or you go to visit somebody in the hospital or in a nursing home and you don't know what to say. But you going and just even sitting with them can bring them so much comfort and remind them that they're not alone. And I would say, even if people let you down and they aren't there for you, God is there for you. He will never be like a person. He will never let you down. He will be with you the whole time. And like I said, he didn't, the church didn't come around, but God still ministered to me in mm-hmm. that hospital bed without people. Yeah. And when I started back to work, the radio station ministered to me in a way that that no one else no one else came into my life to do it but the radio station. God will find a way mm-hmm. oftentimes to talk to us whether it's through the Bible, a radio station, a song, even when people don't do their job. Yeah. and show up support us. But it's the people who are missing out, right? Because we just have too high a value for our own comfort. Yes. I think. And myself included. That is not shaming anyone. Right. <laughs> we're just we like comfort and things are hard when we're confronted with that. Teresa, I have so many other things in here, but I'm looking at the time and I guess what I want to see is where are you now? And then We covered a lot of those lessons. Was there a big lesson or anything that you felt like just overall from this? Oh, my gosh. Over. Is that right? 30 years? No, I'm 28. Almost 30 years. Yeah. (laughs) Since the accident. I think just learning more about God and how he loves us and that we really are his hands and feet. And we are called 
to show up for people. We are called to encourage people and love people and be his hands and feet. And it can be hard when you're battling pain and there's often shame and guilt involved with that. Mm -hmm. And there can be, I remember just thinking, I have no friend that really understands how I feel. Mm -hmm. I have PTSD. I mean, every day there was something, you know, panic attack or something. I have pain. I go to a doctor's visit, like three years after the accident, I had doctor visits every day of the week, Monday through Friday. I didn't have any other friend that had, you know what I mean? I, all these things. And I kept, I was listing them in my brain as I'm driving. And I stop at this stoplight, like no one really understands. And I just heard God say, Teresa, I understand. Hmm. You don't need a human to understand I understand. Like, and then I thought, well, okay, see, Jesus, he's been rejected. He experienced pain. No one understood him. Oh, yeah, of course. He Mm -hmm. understands all this stuff, right? Much more so than a human friend could. Now, I'm saying human friends can help us so much, and it's wonderful when we have them and they can come alongside us and help us. But We don't even have to have another human friend to totally understand us. God already does. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine Jesus knowing that he was going to the cross and none of his best friends even knew? Right. Like talk about bearing things and not having your friends bear them with you or understand like, hey, I'm the son of God. And actually my plan is to go and suffer a horrendous death and die for you. And you don't even know and don't understand. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, and then he's praying there and he says, could you just stay awake? And they keep falling asleep. You know what I mean? They aren't even there to to stay awake for him. Well, this is so good, Teresa. What? Actually, I think the question I want to ask is because of the humor, I want to see this has been a very intense conversation. And I think it's what people need to hear. It usually is. But do you have have you seen God's sense of humor? through all of this pain in any way. Oh, yes. I, and and I have to say, humor really does help you mm-hmm. when when you're, oh man, when I was in the hospital, yeah, you know, like trying to use a bedpan when you never used bedpan, you know, mm-hmm. that's like, you almost have to laugh about that because it normalizes it, you know what I mean? And it becomes, <laughs> and my sister and I laughed about that. And one day I was, I had been constipated from all the medicines and then everything was coming loose. Mm-hmm. So it was coming out that end. I was throwing up at this end and I started my period. And, oh. I'm like, and I just looked at my sister and I just started laughing. I says, I don't have another orifice unless it comes out my nose now. You know what I mean? Like, oh. But yes, God, God has a sense of humor. I can I just imagine like Jesus sitting around with his disciples, you know, around the campfire, all telling jokes and laughing. And do you, did, did you see what that, that little kid today, you know what I mean? Did you? Hmm. So I think human humor does help us and it helps us. It helps normalize the horrible things. If we can laugh at, like I said, using the bedpan or the 29 pills we have to take or something. It also helps us see ourselves as human when we can laugh at that and it helps us allow it allows us to see other people as human too and let them make mistakes because when we can laugh at our mistakes then we go okay they're human too i'm not going to hold them so accountable let's just laugh about this yes we all forget things we all choose the wrong thing we all do the wrong thing so if you could speak to yourself back then in some of the depression you were going through, you know, there might be someone listening who's like, I don't, great, Teresa, like, I don't see anything that I could find humor in. How would you tell someone in just this horrific trial to see humor or develop humor and how that can bring lightness to some of our darkest times? Right. And that is a good question because when you are depressed and you're really serious, it is hard to see humor. Mm -hmm. I had a friend and I would call her And anytime her and I are on the phone, we always end up laughing. 
So oftentimes it's bringing in somebody else to help us laugh. Mm. So I tell them, you know, oh, you know, this and this and this, and then she can crack a joke and then I can laugh about it. And I see myself in the experience a little different. So oftentimes getting outside help to surrounding yourself with at least one or two people who can help mm-hmm. you see the humor and who get can get you to laugh about something, right? And children, little children, like they laugh multiple times a day about nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you pick up a piece of cheese and oh, yeah. ha, 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 look, it's in a silly shape. You know what I mean? They laugh about nothing. So if you can get a couple children around you too, that's really good. And then just, I think, look and see your type of humor, because we all don't laugh about the same thing. Things are not all funny. Mm-hmm. If you went to, you know, there's a comedian performing, not everybody in the audience is laughing at every single joke. Mm-hmm. It might sound like it because different things tickle our funny bone. So f- try and discover like what tickles your funny bone. If you laugh, okay, was it the image? Was it the words? Was it a play on words? Was it because it was sarcastic? What What kind of humor do I like and enjoy? And then you can seek out that kind of humor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Watch funny videos about children, babies laughing, if that's the kind of humor that makes you laugh. Mm-hmm. So, and then another really good thing is, and I do this with my husband, I try and make him laugh at least once a day. Hmm. I like that. So to do that, I had to figure out his sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And does it work? No, sometimes it might take three tries or more to get him to laugh. You know what I mean? And different times of the day because sometimes he's like Teresa that's not funny but it's funny to me and I'll laugh okay so then okay I gotta think of something different but trying to get someone else to laugh Mm -hmm. can really help you improve your humor and get you to laugh too because once they start laughing it's contagious Mm -hmm. and often people laugh so oh my gosh my husband is gonna enjoy this because I one of my wedding vows we wrote our own vows and I said that I promised to laugh really heartily at one of his jokes at least once a week (laughs) because my dad desensitized me to all the dad jokes, which is also my husband's sense of humor. And so I'll smile or actually think it's funny in my head, but it takes a good bit to actually make me laugh. So I just think it's fun because I don't often think of God as a laughing God. And, and the Holy Spirit, my goodness, like when you have that relationship with him, like you're talking about, he's hilarious and he knows your sense of humor and he likes to get you to laugh mm-hmm. in your sense of humor. But I just don't think we often see him as, okay, there's Father God on his throne with, you know, cherubim and all these eyed creatures, winged creatures flying around him and he's laughing at something, you know? Right, right. I think that's really beautiful. I look at the animals he created. Mm-hmm. And they are, some of them are very, very funny. You know what I mean? So, you know, he has a good sense of humor. Some of them yeah, look funny. Like, <laughs> like think about an elephant, not, you know, mm-hmm. and it's trunk if you didn't, weren't accustomed to an elephant. Right. Like that's pretty ridiculous. Right. I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Teresa, what have we not covered? I had more questions I would love to ask, but wrapping it up, what's on your heart that we didn't get to that you would like to share today? I think just remember that you're loved, loved unconditionally. And it's hard for us to imagine unconditional love because human love is often not unconditional. It's Mm -hmm. often conditional. Oftentimes we're raised with conditional love or our mate or our children may have unconditional, I mean, conditional love or our boss. And so to imagine that God has unconditional love for us, I think is something that takes us a whole lifetime to, to really even believe and to know deep in our soul that what there's nothing we can do that will make him not love us. He is always like the prodigal, the father of the prodigal son running to meet us. Mm -hmm. And when, when he ran to meet the son, did he say, why did you leave? tell me all the bad decisions you made. You know what I mean? Did he shame him? Did he guilt him? No, he hugged him in a, in a, he hugged him and said, I am so glad to see you. Gave him a robe and. Yes. And threw a party. Mm -hmm. And the son's like, can I just be a servant? No, no, you're part of the family, right? If we can imagine God like that. It's life changing. Yes. It's life changing. Cause often our concept of God is, is wrong. So good. I received that today as a word for me too. I think we all need that. Thank you, Teresa, for doing this today. How can people connect with you? I know you have some stuff. You have your own podcast. 
if people want to hear more of you, I know we focused on your accident mostly, but you have a lot of other things going on. How can they get a hold of you? So I'm on Instagram at Teresa Bodecker, and then I write at TeresaBodecker.com on online. And I do have 43 episodes of funny stories. The podcast is funny stories because mm-hmm. that's one thing I really enjoy writing. And my blog is sometimes funny stories. It has a little bit of humor and then a lot about God and just daily life and incorporating God's principles into our daily life in a very, there's no shame. It's all grace. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Way. So that's how you can get a hold of me. That's awesome. So maybe if people are needing a laugh today, they can check out your podcast and see if their sense of humor matches your sense of humor. Right. Thank you, Teresa, for doing this. This has been beautiful. And I know it's going to speak to a lot of people. Thank you, Tara, for having me on. Thank you for joining us for a full hour hearing Teresa's testimony. My goodness, I love it. Her resources are linked in the show notes. I hope you guys have a great week wherever you find yourself that you can find gratitude in the small things. And if you're feeling grateful for this podcast, you know, we always love reviews and ratings that helps other people find it. So if you feel like doing that, we certainly would be grateful and we will see you here again next week.